10%, luck, 20%, skill, 15%, concentrated power, will, 5%, pleasure, 50%, pain, and 100% reason to remember the name. Winston 101. This interview is brought to you by Famoso Pizza. Because of Kate's love of pizza. Famoso is a neighborhood restaurant that strives to make your pizzeria experience a memorable one. Filled with fun and a lively atmosphere for you to relax with friends and family and enjoy their top-notch pizza and pasta. Go to Famoso today to sit back, relax, and enjoy some great pizza. This interview is brought to you by Box. Box is a free charity that was put in place to allow kids to be able to have the enjoyment of going out and being able to play sports and do physical activities. Be a part of Box today to improve yourself both physically, mentally, and socially through movement. Check out their website at boxkids.org to get involved. My goal is to figure out the tips and tricks of professional football players, and also give you a glimpse into their personal and professional lives. In this episode, I talked to Kate Pedersen. In my interview with Kate, I took my podcast to a totally different dimension. In other interviews, I've got the player's perspective, the coach's perspective, and now, for the first time, the sidelines perspective through Kate. Kate is currently the host, reporter, and digital content producer for TSN and the Toronto Argonauts. There, she does some pretty amazing things that some people can only dream of, like creating secret handshakes with star Toronto Blue Jays or riding in Lamborghinis with the Toronto Argonauts. She also has her own blog, where she shares her life stories. In our interview, Kate openly shares about the struggles of losing her parents, and what she's learned from it. How to be more disciplined in your everyday life, and even how young lads like me can get all the cute girls. But without further ado, I hope you enjoy. Hey Kate, I'm glad we got a chance to sit down and chat. Periodically on my podcast, I've interviewed people that are not football players, but are still involved or had an influence on the sport. You were raised on the sidelines, having a dad that was a former professional football player and broadcaster, and now you're one of the faces of the Argonauts organization. Could you take me on your journey through football? Well, it honestly started as just an activity, just something that I did with my dad. I wasn't alive when he played. So once he was broadcasting, he called games for 23 years for CTV and TSN. And it started as just kind of hanging out with dad, almost like take your kid to work day, but on a regular basis. I'd go down and we kind of had some unwritten rules. So I went down on the field during warmup, but those unwritten rules were kind of don't get hit in the head with the ball, stay back. It's funny because it influenced the way I approached my career, especially this season in particular. But I knew that when he was getting those extra little tidbits of information and they would be confidential until the game started to unfold, I knew to take a step back, especially if he was interacting with a head coach or a quarterback or whoever on the team he was talking to. Those are some of our unwritten rules, you know, keep your head on a swivel and then also be respectful of the conversations that were happening and take a step back and not eavesdrop on some of those confidential moments. 
And then I'd go up and really honestly, it started because of my love for the popcorn in the press box. (laughs) It's really good. And then as I started to understand the game more, I started to recognize faces. And I was so lucky to grow up in an era where you had guys like Pinball Clemens, Mike O'Shea, Kevin Ivan, who I now work with. He's our special teams coach. I was lucky to have those kinds of people. And if you've had any interaction with them, obviously pinball is a staple. You just know that they're quality people on and off the field. So then those guys started to become my heroes and I started to be more interested in what was happening on the field. And as it grew, my dad and I had a lot of car rides up north during the season and in the winter where we'd listen to the Fan 590 and we always watched football and we watched a lot of golf and curling too. So that was sort of a natural transition. I was just around as a kid and I slowly developed my own natural passion for the game. Other than your dad being an influence on your career, how else has he been an influence in your life? Well, I think, to be honest, it was just a love for sports and all athletics and and being athletic. I play a lot of sports myself. I like to think I got my good golf swing from him as well. (laughs) I mean, we were two peas in a pod. So I've learned a lot up until he passed. I was 21 when he passed away. So in that time, I only had a couple of years really as an adult to learn from him. But I think work ethic and passion and drive is stuff that I soaked in kind of like a sponge without even realizing it, just from watching him work and watching him work on even something as simple as his golf swing, the way he put effort into his craft, because I didn't get to watch him play. So I didn't see what he was like as a player. But I know that based on some of the other things I saw that that he had to have been someone who really honed in on his skill set and his craft. The one thing that I think back to quite often actually is he came and spoke at Queens when I was on the executive for the Queens Sports Industry Conference. And the one line he used in his speech was that passion drives performance. And you hear a lot of people say, if your job doesn't feel like work, then you're doing what you need to be doing. If you're having so much fun, even working crazy hours and sacrificing your weekends and all of the above, then you're really doing something that doesn't feel like work, but is a way you've created your livelihood. And so I always think back to that passion drives performance. And I am so passionate about football and about what I do so that often a Saturday night, I'm more excited to go to work than to go out with my friends. I don't really think of it most of the time as a sacrifice, unless I'm missing out on something really big. And I'm like, oh, we have a game that weekend. I can't go. That's one thing that he taught me that I regularly look back to. I think of him all the time, of course, with my football influences. And unfortunately, he passed at only 57. It was a shock to all of us. I think about him all the time, especially When I'm standing in the stadium or I've had a good broadcast or I've filed a really great story and I think, oh, I wish you were here to talk about it. Sorry for your loss. Thank you. It sounds like your dad was like your coach off the field too. 100%. A very big influence in my life. And to think back now as an adult, I was a, a little girl version of him for sure. We have so many similar qualities. And even uh, my mom used to always say, 
for the the good and the bad. Oh my gosh, you are your dad. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's neat. My dad has taught me quite a few lessons about being successful. Some of the lessons have been direct, where he's told me that you have to know yourself first, because only by knowing where you are can you know where you want to be. And some are just from watching him. What are some of the lessons that your dad has taught you about being a success? I think the ground root of all of it is two things. Hard work and being committed to put in the time 100% because it's not always easy. And I watched him prepare for games. I watched him lay out all sorts of notes and write all sorts of things down and and make extra calls before games and just take it an extra step. In my job today, I'll write 40 pages of notes and I probably only say on a broadcast or practice in terms of the questions I ask three or four things. And if you looked at my Grey Cup notes, you'd laugh because I just wrote all this stuff. But I wanted to be prepared. And I think along with that hard work, that you can never be too overprepared. There is no such thing. Because if you don't use it, you don't use it. But you're never stuck short. And I think that's a real key to being successful is that you really have to put the hard work. I learned a lot from him about that. I think big picture, and I, I can expand on it more aside from what my dad taught me specifically, but I think that you need to know what keeps you grounded and what's important. And from my dad, I learned that family really is everything, that that is your go-to no matter what you've got them. I learned from the best in my parents that building relationships is so key. My mom, in, in her final years with us, taught me not to sweat the small stuff. And I often find myself using that at work when something doesn't go right. And, and it could be just a little thing throughout the day. You've got to really take it back and say, okay, big picture, does this affect me? Is this going to be a challenge? And if it is, you find a solution. And if it's not, you take a deep breath onto the next. And I think those things and family, the way that family intertwines with your day-to-day life is so important. Those are some of the biggest lessons that I've learned from him. And then even with my mom battled cancer for eight years, and I learned so much in that time about her and about putting myself first. So I think In a business like the sports industry, the sports media industry specifically, it's a busy season. It's a grind. It's long hours. Your strength lies in the ability to know what you can and can't handle and to be able to step back and say, you know what? I need to take a me day. I need to go to a yoga class or go to the gym or whatever it may be. Because ultimately, if you're able to step back, taking that one day or a couple of days the quality of your work is going to be impacted. I really like that point about family. Back to my interview with Matt Dunnigan, his fortune cookie is keep life simple, God, family, and friends. And often I get too carried away with football and I just need to look back on my priorities. Absolutely. To be able to recognize that is also a really big strength and a positive is to be able to say, this is where I ground myself and to be able to step back and look at that big picture. I think that's a really 
big strength for someone to have. How young were you when you set the goal to become a media personality? Honestly, 21. I was thinking about it, and I had obviously seen my dad in action. But when he passed away, that really ignited the fire to want to do it. And it happened the summer before my fourth year of university at Queen's. He had a sudden heart attack. He died at the end of July. And so I had the month of August to kind of grieve and figure out what I was going to do before I had to go back to school. And when I went back to school, I said, you know what, this is what I want to do. So I changed all of my elective courses to be online. And I went to the radio station and I said, I don't care what I do, but I want to get some reps. I want to be involved. Would you take me? And they had a student show on Sunday nights where each week they'd let a student host this show. And this was at the local radio station. So it wasn't with Queens. It was an actual music station. And they let me on and I did a really good job. And so then they had me on weekdays in the mornings. I'd regularly join one of the talk shows and talk about whatever. I remember before Valentine's Day, I was giving one of the hosts dating advice. I wasn't even qualified. I'd Google great tips to wow your date on Valentine's Day. And I'd come in with all these notes. And I don't even know if I had a boyfriend at the time or not, but I was not a dating expert by no means, nor am I now. So anyway, it was just funny. But you know what? It got me on air and I got some reps. And I also started working at the... Queen's Athletic Center and in the athletic program doing the in-stadium stuff at at the basketball games and the volleyball games throughout the winter. I was on the dance pack, so I was busy during football games, so I couldn't be on the mic with my main sport. But I did some of that, and really that is what started it, and it all kind of fell into place. And then from there, I went home for the summer, and I knew through one of my dad's friends Keith Pelly, he was the head of the whole broadcast consortium for the Olympic Games in Vancouver. And he said, Kate, you're coming to Vancouver. I probably can't pay you. And I have no idea what you're doing, but you're coming. So I went home and I worked three jobs all summer and fall, saved all my money. I rented my own condo out there. I paid for my own travel to get out there. And I worked for free for two and a half months for the Olympics as an intern. But that gave me what I would consider the golden ticket. I had a pass. And in all of my free time, I went to events. And I got to see so much cool stuff. And the night before the Olympic Games kicked off, they pulled me into a room and they said, we've got this crazy idea. We're going to put you on television and you're going to be Kate the intern. And I did crazy things. I waited seven hours in line to do the zip line. I went around trying to find someone from every single country. I went on a scavenger hunt to find the best souvenirs. I did anything and everything they asked me. But that was my first ever time live on television was at the Vancouver Olympics. You know what, Kate? I really like your story into football. Most people in media don't have that same story, and your story really inspires me, and I hope it inspires lots of people. I hope so, too. It, you know, it came from a natural passion, and then I just had to find a way because I can tell you I probably can't even count on my hand, including 
a boss at the time when I was working somewhere telling me that they didn't believe someone without a journalism degree had a future in broadcasting. And that, as someone who is very passionate and dedicated, is really difficult to hear. And I remember sitting in this one office and my boss, who had me on television, basically told me that I wasn't going to climb the ranks or go anywhere. And I didn't let that discourage me. But I did do a lot of work for free for years. And I had serving jobs on the side to pay the bills. But I didn't give up and I didn't let someone say, you need this particular degree in writing on your resume to be successful. Were there any other roadblocks or challenges along the way? There are lots every day. I mean, it's obviously a bit of a different industry in terms of what people are looking for. You can be very talented and you can have all the qualifications and you could just be not the right look or not the energy someone is looking for. So I think one of the biggest challenges on a regular basis is that it's not very objective, it's subjective. Someone doesn't like your presence, they don't hire you. But it's not because you didn't have the right qualifications. It's not like an accountant where they have to go and get their degree and finish X number of courses and then you're an accountant and if you work hard, you get hired. So how do you get past that? Just keep on going. A very smart man recently told me, I had a, a quick chat with him just for a pep talk because I think he brings a lot of knowledge to the table. And it's a situation right now in Toronto where we've just hired a new coach. But I think it's undeniable that Coach Mark Tressman brings so much knowledge and, and he's a very smart man. I had a conversation with him in the past few months about my career and about what I was doing big picture. And he said, take a piece of paper and at the top of that piece of paper, write the word relentless and look at it every single day. And below that word, write your list of every single person that you think could help you along the way, might be able to give you a job, could give you an interesting perspective, might just be someone you want to go to coffee with because they might be motivating, inspirational. They might knock you down and it might help fire you up for the next job. And he said, look at that word relentless every day. And since he told me that, that's what I've thought of every single day. You've got to be relentless. You could send your resume and your demo reel to a thousand people. One in that thousand has to bite and that could be your ticket. That's really good advice. I'll have to remember that. He's a smart guy. I know he said a lot of really great things in the locker room and I know a lot of players have taken some of his words of wisdom and incorporated them into their daily routines. One of the things that I've learned from my podcast is that you can't talk about success without talking about dealing with adversity. How has adversity changed you? And how has it impacted the goals that you've set? I think one thing, even as of late, goes back to that knowing what you need to do for yourself to be successful. And I think part of that, for me, specifically, is dealing with the loss that I've dealt with over the years from a family perspective and finding ways to navigate that and still stay on track. And I actually wrote a blog about it after my mom passed away. 
because that was a pretty harsh reality. She was sick for a very long time. I worked through it. In the end, I took a, a four-month leave of absence. I went home and I spent a lot of time with her. And I never ended up going back to my job after the fact because it really gave me perspective on what I wanted to do and what did and didn't work for me. I was doing updates at TSN Radio, which was a great job, but it wasn't something that I thought I wanted to do for a long time. So I said, you know what, let's just start fresh and look at a big picture. What do I need to do? But it was also really difficult through that time to deal with the stuff going on in the back of my mind, like if I'm away from the business and out of sight and out of mind, how do I stay relevant? How do I come through all of this and grieve the loss of my mom, but still have that fire and that edge and still be able to network and find something for work? So I think really being able to separate work from self-care and figure out what was the best position to put myself in to be performing at my best was a big key at the beginning because I was dealing with a lot of grief and a lot of loss and, and navigating that while also trying to get back on track with my career after having to take a little bit of a break. That's probably some of the biggest adversity that I've had to deal with. And it's been very difficult. And I have some days where I just eat pizza and don't want to get out of bed. And then I take those days and I say, you know what, that's one day. There's so many more days in a week, so many more days in a month and a year. And then I channel that really focusing on what I like to do and being able to say no to things that I don't want to do. And that's hard sometimes, but you have to trust that you're following your passions you, your work ethic stands for itself and that it's not something you have to tell someone over and over, but that the way you work once you're in a role is self-explanatory, that you show them that you're dedicated to your craft and that you work hard and you want to get better. You just have to trust that your hard work and your passion and your drive is going to carry you. And, and it's nerve wracking, especially in a business where I take an off season and I have to hope that I stay relevant through that off season and then come back guns blazing when we get into training camp mode. That's the biggest challenge that I face. And it's easy to doubt yourself. And you go through periods where it's, it's very difficult. What I do for myself in some of these situations is an example was a few weeks ago, I had seen someone on camera that I hadn't really seen much of in a while just because I was busy and I hadn't looked at her stuff. Last year when I looked at her stuff, I thought, she's okay. But I wasn't absolutely floored with her on-camera presence. And then this time around, I watched a video and I said, wow, she is fantastic. She has done a really good job of improving her delivery, her on-camera presence, her energy, all of the above. I just thought, wow, she is so polished and finessed. And I had heard through the grapevine that she had taken some improv classes. So I did a drop-in and I sat there terrified because I had no idea what to expect. But I went and I did it and I thought, hey, that was fun. It was definitely out of my comfort zone, but I'm going to go back and do it again because if that worked for her, then I've got to at least give it a fair shot. You know, it's a fast-paced and competitive business and I always want to be better. 
So it's all about doing what you love. Absolutely. Doing what you love and finding ways to be better at what you're doing and continue to improve. What are some of the goals that you've set for yourself lately? Oh, that's a tough one. Just to keep improving. I think that this year in my position with the Argos, I had some new challenges, which I learned a lot and I grew and I became more versatile overall in terms of my skill set. And I'm very critical of my work and I like to look back on everything. I noticed a vast improvement from the first video I did to the last video I did just through the season in this little sort of compartment of my career. My biggest goal is to just keep on growing, keep getting better, keep getting reps and push myself even further, especially on air. But also I did a lot more producing this year. I learned a lot more of the ins and outs and yeah, just honestly, my biggest goal is to just keep on going and keep on working because the reward is, is being able to look back and say, wow, I really got better with my delivery, with my cadence, with my breathing inflections, whatever it may be for that on air portion. I think my biggest goal is to just keep on going and keep grinding and keep hustling. Every day, it seems like I get busier and busier, either with football, school, or my podcast. And as I've gotten busier, I found it harder and harder to manage my time. As you got busier, how did you learn to manage your time? What techniques did you use? And do you have any advice for me? I have a great trick. And it's funny because it came from my Aunt Sarah, my dad's sister. I would find myself sitting in my living room with whatever it was, a big pile of laundry, a to-do list of emails and invoices and things like that. And we call it the 20-minute rule. And as silly as it sounds, I use it multiple times a week. And the premise is you can do anything for 20 minutes. Sometimes I'll put on music, sometimes I don't. And I set my timer for 20 minutes and I can tell you that not once have I ever stopped after 20 minutes. You just keep on going. And I find that that kind of lifts the barrier when you're feeling overwhelmed and you've got too much going on. If you just say, okay, I'm going to do 20 minutes of solid, uninterrupted work and get a little bit ahead, it kind of gets the wheel spinning and you get going. And aside from that, I really just look big picture. Okay, let's prioritize. What needs to be done right away? What needs to be done soon? And what can I put on the back burner that won't impact my career, my school, my day-to-day, whatever it may be, that could just wait a week or wait a couple days? And I think being able to look big picture and say the world won't end if I don't do that this week is a really big advantage and it helps you be more productive with some of the things you need to prioritize. A lot of people have talked to me about prioritizing my time because that's how you become successful. What are your priorities? Probably rooting back to what we talked about earlier. My priorities are health and family and furthering my career, whatever that may be, whether it's looking for different things to do on the side, whether it's Growing my knowledge of football, watching film, going through some of my game notes and and furthering my knowledge because my goal ultimately in terms of my football IQ is to be someone that while I haven't played football has the IQ of someone who has. And that's the biggest challenge in 
actual football knowledge is that unlike a lot of guys like my dad that found themselves in the broadcast booth, I get to go in the locker room for interviews, but I'm not sitting in meetings. I'm not on the field. I don't have 20 or 15 years of football experience under my belt before I go pro. I think I'm always trying to further that knowledge and continue to hone my craft. And that's definitely a priority. Finding ways to further my career on a regular basis, not just when I'm not working and looking for the next job. My priority is always finding ways to get better. And within that, I find ways to improve myself and think about family and friends and my well-being as well. Have you ever had a time when something didn't work out for you and you were disappointed at the time, but now you're grateful it turned out that way? I think a great example would be this season in particular. We got involved in our discussions in early May and I was brought on actually the night before the ring ceremony. I signed my contract with MLSE and that was to be the host reporter and a features producer. And on the side of that, I was still trying to be the TSN 1050 sideline reporter. And that's the role that I've had consistently throughout my years with the team this past season was my fourth year working with the Argos and I absolutely love the broadcast so my role there would be to set the scene before the game injury updates throughout the game halftime interview post-game interview and really be the eyes and ears on the field behind the bench on the radio broadcast now we all know that the media industry, there's lots going on with cutbacks and things like that. So the budget was cut for the sideline reporter and it ended up just being the two guys up top. And I was really disappointed because while it may not be the most glamorous part of my job, it's the radio broadcast. No one ever sees me. It really was the one thing that I loved the most. And so at the time I was really upset, but now looking back, the way my role unfolded I was challenged so much this year. I learned so much, especially with that producer title. Sitting there, having to deal with something that I became emotionally attached to, an interview that might have been 35 minutes. And I thought, how can I cut any of this out for a five-minute documentary? It was really tough. And I learned a lot through the process. And I learned more about editing and the way production at MLSE worked and things like that. So I really did think at the time that it was just the most disappointing thing ever. But it transpired into being an opportunity to focus more on the other roles that I was involved in. And I really think that it worked out quite nicely. Got to get my feet wet a little bit by doing the Calgary sidelines for the Grey Cup. And this was my second time being on a Grey Cup broadcast. And there are a couple extra reasons about why that was so special, but uh, year two was pretty incredible. So what other reasons made that experience special? So last year, the way the broadcast works at Grey Cup is everyone kind of gets bumped down out of their role. So some of the guys that work on the TV broadcast come over, they call the game. So then what happened for us in particular on the Toronto side was that Mike Hogan, who regularly calls the game for TSN 1050, then got bumped down to the sidelines, which then bumps me out of the job. So a week before the Grey Cup, they called me 
and said, hey, would you like to do Calgary's sidelines? Because Calgary had made it in. It was probably the day after Calgary won. Calgary is in a market where they don't have a TSN radio station. So they don't have a sideline reporter. And I said, oh my gosh, wow, 100%. That week was actually one of the most exciting weeks of my career, but also one of the most difficult emotionally. I spent a lot of time in my room either studying or in a pile of tears because that was a moment, probably one of the toughest moments aside from my first ever broadcast where I really thought about my dad and I thought, wow, I miss him. I really want him to be here. This stinks not having him there. I was so stressed because I wanted to do so well and I was really nervous, especially covering a team in the East. I'm pretty familiar with all of the teams, but my depth of knowledge in terms of rosters and players and playmakers is much stronger in the East because we see those teams a lot more. Sometimes I don't always watch the late games on the West Coast and things like that. So I really had to study because I wanted to be really good. And so I spent a lot of time studying and it came to game day. And I remember thinking about it before the game, but for so many years when I was growing up, my dad and Rod Black were partners in the broadcast booth. So I've known Rod forever. And I'd go and sit behind them on my little chair in the press box in Toronto and watch them call games. All of a sudden, I'm standing on the sidelines at Grey Cup and my very first hit, it's Rod Black calling the game and he throws down to me on the sidelines. And after I did my hit, I just stood there and I was like kind of in shock. I just thought, wow, if my dad had been alive, we might have done a game together. And it was just this crazy, crazy feeling. And I definitely cried after the game, especially I think my first season, I cried a lot in the car after the game. Of course, with my ties to Toronto, I didn't expect to get a ring. I didn't know how that would turn out. But that was another tearful moment when I got the email from Jim Pop with the form saying, can you fill this out? You're on our list for a Grey Cup ring. I was skiing in Revelstoke and I got off the chair at the top of the hill and I just started crying. And I just that that was the coolest moment for me because my dad played in two and he lost both. One of them happened to be a, a pretty historical game, the, the game they call the catch. And it's always in the Grey Cup moment countdowns. Just to be able to stand there and, and share a moment with even more history with my dad than just our relationship, but to have Rod Black and he called it again this year. And sure enough, Rod threw down to me on the sidelines in Edmonton and I think that's one of the things that makes this Canadian Football League so special, especially for someone who's been a part of it for so long, is that I talked a little bit about Mike O'Shea being one of my heroes growing up. And now when Winnipeg comes to town, I see Mike O'Shea and he's coaching and all of those ties. That's what makes this league so special and it's accessible and players aren't on a pedestal. You're able to go up and approach them and nine times out of 10, they're willing to give you their time. I'm sure you experienced that firsthand with your podcast. I know you mentioned Mike Riley and Chris Jones. Like Those are guys that are, are really busy in season and they're involved with their football and they don't work a nine to five. They work a lot more than 48 hours a week. I think there are a lot of incredibly special people and I think that's part of what makes this league so special as well. It's pretty cool. We've both experienced some crazy moments and some great memories. Absolutely. Football and CFL fans are very passionate. 
Can you tell me about the craziest or cutest fan moment that you've ever seen or heard about? Honestly, it's just so nice to see the way the fans support. There's no doubt that it's a difficult market in Toronto specifically, but that group, you can call them small but mighty. They always love coming down after the game, win or lose. They're there. They're supporting. I mean, in terms of a special moment, I I can't even describe the experience of this year. We did our first ever Holland Bloorview visit, and it's a kid's rehabilitation hospital. So often you see sports teams going to sick kids because that's the most prominent hospital here in Toronto. And the Leafs go, TFC goes, the Raptors, etc. But we decided to go to Holland Bloorview and make it a really big thing because it's a really big space so we could fit the whole team. But also, it doesn't get the same attention as sick kids because that's sort of like the next step. Once they're stable enough to leave sick kids, they go to this hospital. So it sometimes gets to be a bit of a forgotten hospital. I can't even describe how special it was. I think the kids were so excited. One of their volunteers was just going wild when the players got off the bus. And that was the entire team. There were like 80 of us there. It was crazy. Equally special was watching the players. Matthew Lozwell, he didn't even really play for us this year. He was on the practice roster. So I didn't really know him before this moment. And turns out he does magic on the side. He brought a bunch of his tricks and he had the kids going wild with his magic tricks. You know, some were a little bit shy and players went over and warmed them up. And then by the end, they were laughing and chatting. And it was incredibly special to see the impact that they were able to have in a short time. We were there for a couple of hours. And I just think those moments when someone's down or someone's in need of a little pick-me-up or just a smile. Or I think that those moments are just incredible and they make, I think for the players and even for the staff and for us that we're able to experience that, we take away more ultimately than the kids because, you know, it, it lifts you up. It really makes you think, wow, if I'm able to do this through my career path, it's pretty darn special. Yeah, it's like those heartwarming shows on TV. Oh, yeah. Oh, the military visits get me crying all the time. I think the way that the fans are able to access players, especially in the CFL, that there's a lot of those magic moments. And for the players to take time out of their busy lives to do that, I think is pretty special. With the changes in media and social media, how do you stay confident that you're providing value? I think you just have to have faith in what you do and that, that you work hard. It's really tough to see what some people write online. I try to remind myself it's really easy to type something behind a computer when you don't know someone or haven't ever actually met them in real life. It's easy to get the wind out of your sails because there are people that comment nasty things all the time on the Toronto Argonauts page, on my page, and things like that. And sometimes it makes you question what you're doing or whether or not you're bringing value. One way, aside from trying to block that out, or maybe some people don't even look at it. I look at it because I kind of use it, to be honest, to fuel me. But also I think 
being able to accept constructive criticism, often we don't get a lot of feedback. So being confident enough to reach out and ask for it, I think those things help you stay relevant, know you're relevant, and and give you a confidence in yourself and allow you to believe in what you're doing. Relying on your peers for that stuff is really helpful. While we are telling stories, my role is a little bit unique with the team in that I can't ask all the hard-hitting media questions because I represent the team. So I have certain parameters where what I'm doing is I'm allowed to report on what's right in front of me, but I'm not there to dig deeper in terms of scandal, controversy, drama, whatever that may be. But I am there to dig deep and challenge myself and draw personal and inspiring and engaging stories out of these players, right? I'm there to storytell. When you're in a a space like that, that's really creative, being confident in your work, but not egotistical and being able to take some suggestions from other creators, whether they work on the Raptors, TFC, the Leafs, wherever it may be. I think that's really key in making sure that your content is relevant and strong and you don't get comfortable in what you're doing because you're always willing to try new things or explore different opportunities. And I think that's really a way that you can rely on your peers in the creative space, especially to keep yourself relevant and to keep your work fresh. Have you ever risked something in your job or changed something that you didn't normally do and it ended up working out for you? That's a tough one. I mean, to be honest, I think this producer role, this was the furthest I've ever pushed myself outside of being on camera because the on-camera thing has been something that I've been working on since 2009. For me, this whole year was a risk, particularly this mini documentary series that I worked on. We, they came out bi-weekly and we called it Pull Together and they were about five minutes each. I think one thing that I worked on really, really hard this year and was easier because I spent a lot of time with the team. I traveled with the team on the buses and the planes But I really worked hard on building relationships with players and coaches on a professional level, but building a level of comfort and learning what they like, what they don't like, what makes them tick. Because sometimes I was asking questions and asking them to talk about things that were really raw and really personal and and maybe experiences that weren't great. Ahead of the Pure Later Tackle Hunger Game, I wanted to talk to Jermaine Gabriel And I went online and did a bunch of research and I realized that he had previously talked a little bit about the fact that he was homeless and that he and his family lived in shelters and didn't have a lot to eat. And he found his way out of that and and tried to go to school but had to drop out because of financial restraint. That was the biggest bout of adversity going into building his football career. And he really had to overcome a lot. But that can be a sensitive subject. The risk-taking and some of the challenges I faced there were, how do I take this incredible interview, push them a little bit to try to get more out of the interview without offending them or pushing buttons and things like that, but then also to take some of this raw emotion that they shared and break it down into a five-minute piece that I was going to be proud of, but also that they were happy with and that they were 
to do their story justice. And I think one of the most nerve-wracking, just out of respect for him, was actually Coach Tresman's because he's just so smart and philosophical. And I over-prepared like crazy, and I think he was impressed with with the notes and the background research that I'd done. But that was nerve-wracking to sit in front of your team's head coach one-on-one for half an hour and ask him all these questions and then take all of his answers because he's very well-spoken and cut that into a five-minute piece that he was going to like. That's challenging. And, and this is someone's raw and personal story. That was the biggest risks that I took this year were from a production standpoint and challenging myself to get the most out of an interview and then finding a way to put that into a five-minute piece that was meaningful and that gave me goosebumps, gave the viewer goosebumps and really made an impact and inspired others. Yeah, no kidding. That would be a challenge. From listening to your interviews, you can tell that you put a lot of time into coming up with good questions before each interview. What do you do to come up with good questions? Again, kind of comes back to my unique role with the team. If I see a player at practice leave practice, I'm not the one reporting about that. I'm not breaking the news. I work for the team. And when the information is released, then I do with it what I need to do in my storytelling. So I don't have to do all of that observing, but I I think it really helps you stay relevant and stay in the mix. So I find that going to practice, watching practice, and really drawing on that respect that I've built and those relationships that I've built with the players helps because there are guys that I'll call them cliche machines. They just pump out the cliches. They know they're, it's like they are on script or on a timer and they know when to spit the next one out kind of thing. And so I think really knowing who you're talking to is the root of being able to be successful in that regard. I can draw on an example from Grey Cup is that I spent a lot of time with a guy named Danny Austin, who is one of the Calgary Beat reporters. He writes all the articles. And I kind of went through a 101 for Grey Cup. Who's well-spoken? Who should I talk to in a situation where, say, you're down 30 points at halftime? Who's going to still be level-headed and give me a decent and respectful answer? I'm not going to pry too hard into the nitty-gritty if you're down you know, 30 nothing at halftime. But really knowing who you're speaking to really helps. And then again, asking relevant questions based on what you saw that day. You can't make things up. Often coaches aren't going to give you things two or three days out. And that comes with reps and routine. I had it down to a science what Coach Tressman would tell me two days out, what Coach Tressman would tell me the day before, and what he didn't want to talk about. Being able to understand that and find ways either around it or ways to get a similar result, but while staying within the confines of your respectful relationship was really big. Being at practice, you see a lot. You see who's talking to who on the sidelines. You're seeing who's staying later in the locker room to watch more film. You're seeing all sorts of things. So I like to think that all of that plays into what I'm asking from a football perspective. Obviously, you're seeing who's injured, who's up, who's down, who's getting reps, but you can dive deeper into that by knowing 
A, by doing your homework and knowing, has this guy ever started? Did he come back from a potentially career-ending knee injury? Is this start even more meaningful because of that, et cetera? But then also I found a lot of watching interactions between players at practice. You can draw on that and you can make those questions more personalized or take them a little bit further instead of saying, how excited are you to start this week? It's more like, I've noticed you working a lot with Marcus Ball, a defensive veteran. What has he taught you through this week to help you prepare for your first start or something like that, right? Because everyone's going to say they're excited for their first start. Of course they are. Really thinking big picture about what this moment means and how they've pushed themselves to embrace the moment and make the most of it. Both you and I do a lot of research, and I think that's what's made us so successful. What's been your favorite question to ask players? The highlight of my career had to have been the fact that I got the opportunity in the money moment, I'll call it, after Grey Cup last year. They've hoisted the trophy, and I do a one-on-one live on the field with Ricky Ray, and I ask the retirement question. He said he, he didn't know, and obviously we found out through the offseason that he decided to come back. But to be in that moment and to get the opportunity to ask someone, a hero, someone that so many people look up to as a player, as a person, as a quarterback on our team, to, to be in that moment where it was so special for me, you know, finishing the first ever Grey Cup broadcast I had done. I worked for Toronto in the regular season and Toronto just won and my childhood hero pinballs on the field. And I'm doing this interview with a future hall of famer. And even though that wasn't really like a tough question, that is one moment that I will never forget. Now I know this is kind of putting pressure on you, but if you were to ask a question to me, what would you ask me? You're giving me all the tough fun. <laughs> I'm thoroughly impressed with your preparation and your dedication and your professionalism. And I think at a young age, you've really got the skill set to go very far. I think my question would be, how do you want to get there? What is it? You probably have an end goal in mind and you're taking all these steps. But to you, what would be the stuff along the way that really keeps you passionate and fired up and, and wanting to go all the way and keep doing this every day. Well, I, I guess I'll have to prepare for that if you do ever do interview me. <laughs> yeah. Kate, my goal is to become a professional quarterback when I'm older. And from what you've seen, from being around football your whole life, if I was your little brother, what advice would you give me? Have you found any tendencies between players that have been successful? I think the one thing in this locker room this past year that really stood out was a next man up mentality. And they talked about that a lot because we dealt with a lot of adversity in terms of injuries. You're on the right track just from the podcast perspective is, is your preparation is key. You're always ready. You're ready to go and you've got to be ready in that moment because you never know. I was sitting on my couch getting ready to go to Grey Cup and host the festival, but I wasn't going to be on the broadcast. And the next day, they called me. All of a sudden, my week completely changed, and this mega opportunity to do my first ever Grey Cup presented itself, and I was ready. I jumped in. I got all my notes, studied the depth chart, 
all the players on the roster, etc. Being ready always is a big key. You never want to get lazy about what you're doing, always working. In particular, the tendencies that I saw in the locker room, you see it a lot with the quarterbacks, is kind of like a first man in, last man out mentality and real genuine students of the game. I think that's what I've learned about Ricky Ray and I've learned from watching the dynamic of Ricky Ray with McLeod Bethel-Thompson, James Franklin, Dakota Prukop, all of the backup quarterbacks throughout the last year and my four years with the team. Ricky Ray is a genuine student of the game. And at no point in his future Hall of Fame career has he stopped. There isn't a day where he doesn't keep working because you can always get better. That those guys, it doesn't take very long in terms of being around the team to pick out the guys that really are honed in on their craft and are real genuine students of the game. And I say genuine because anyone can sit there and look over their notes, but they're guys that take another player aside and they're having these little huddles that I talked about at practice. Okay, so this didn't work for me. What do you do to fix that problem? Or I missed my assignment here. How do I not let that happen again? Whatever it may be. Really honestly, exploring, and it's similar to what I do in my work, exploring any way to get better. What are the ways? Maybe it's a different off-season regimen to get your body better or being up in weight, dropping weight, whatever it is, so that when you come to camp, you're ready and you can study the notes in the film, et cetera, and be attentive in meetings and get better. So I, I really think being students of the game and really thinking about all aspects of your craft are the tendencies of the most successful guys in the locker room. Thanks for that, Kate. Ricky Ray, I really try to emulate with being a student of the game. I saw this post on Twitter of him being the first man in and last man out. And that's the mentality that I want to have when I'm a quarterback. And I really try to emulate him for that. Absolutely. And he really honestly, from someone that was there, he never left, even though he left the field this year. And so I think that speaks volumes for Ricky Ray as a person and as a player. And it also probably plays a large part in why he's experienced so much success for such a long period of time in this league is because he got hurt. And as soon as he was able to be around the team again, he was back in meetings and kind of taking on a a mentor and a coach role because he wasn't able to play. Mike Riley, Matt Duddingen, and Trevor Harris all told me that quarterbacks get all the cute girls. <laughs> As your little, little brother, what advice would you give me about the girls? Just remember, I just turned 12. Be kind and respectful. Don't ever forget that. I think that's the biggest thing. You can get cute girls. But I think know, know your values, you know? A lot of what I like, and it's funny you mentioned Trevor Harris because he's a really good friend of mine and the one thing I love about Trevor is the way he values his family. I got to know his family, his current wife, and his parents. Before they got married, Kaylee was up here when they were dating and and getting to know his parents. He really does put his family first and value his family. And if that's something you value, then as long as she's cute and nice and values her family, then I say go for it. <laughs> 
Thanks, kid. I'll have to remember that. You show a lot of your life on social media. I follow you on Instagram, and it's like lifestyles of the rich and famous. Is there <laughs> anything about you that people would be surprised to know? Oh, I mean, it's a lot less glamorous than it looks. In particular, I don't get any of my makeup or hair done for game day or anything. Sometimes for like a red carpet event, I will, which is awesome. But most of the time, I'm at the stadium with my phone propped up in the wind tunnel that is BMO Field, trying to fix my hair, trying to do my makeup. Often we'll shoot two videos in one day just because of the access and the time with the players. And I'll change in the bathroom at BMO Field from one dress to the next dress. It is kind of funny that you say that it's very glamorous on social, but I think if people actually saw the process of getting ready for some of those shoots, they would laugh. I mean, I think I'm pretty real on social. I've been really open about the challenges and some of that adversity that we talked about. I mean, I lost both my parents at a very young age and I've recently lost both my grandmas and I've dealt with a lot of loss. And with that comes a lot of adult responsibilities that I think a lot of people will have to deal with. You know, at some point we're all going to probably deal with losing a parent or a grandparent, unfortunately. But I think I've been pretty real in terms of my blogs. I've expressed a lot of really personal things that I've experienced. And I do that not for attention, but because A, I find writing very therapeutic in those moments. And, you know, sometimes I'll write a blog and I'll go weeks without touching it. And then I'll go back and edit it and put it on my website. Or I wrote a story about after my mom passed about my mom for Chatelaine magazine. Sometimes that's what triggers me to let it all out. And there's tears on the keyboard But that's, for me, therapeutic. But also, I drew on the strength of some of my friends and their experiences. And I think that if there's any positive to draw from all of the awful things I've experienced through losing my parents, it's that maybe, just maybe, reading my blog or reading about some of the funny things that happened through the tough times that if that might help someone just a little bit, then it's worth it. Social media actually reminds me a lot of acting. You have to get into character, change outfits, just like you said. Yeah, and I think it's important in this day and age, too. We talk a little bit about the challenges of being in the spotlight a little bit and and how it is easy. You know, cyber, we have programming where our players go in the offseason. It's a fantastic program huddle up bullying prevention and and they go into schools and they now they have to talk a lot about cyberbullying and before you hit send and and all of those things. So I think it's important too that while social media is such a vital part of my job, it's how I build my brand and it's a platform for me to express myself and my work. It's also important to realize and be able to step back and say, you know, it's not always as it seems. I try to keep mine as real as possible. And some days that I have a bad day, I don't post about it. And some days I have a good day, I'm so busy having a good day that I don't post about that either. And those are the good days. Those are the ones I really like, you know, when I'm too busy to even look at my phone because I'm having so much fun. Finding the balance is really key in that. And I am very cognizant of what I post and that it is me and that it's my brand 
and that I'm not doing anything that's going to hinder my career, that anything I'm putting on there is positive and is easy to get down on yourself. But the one thing I do keep constant is that I try not to post anything negative, even if I'm frustrated. And so I think that that is really key for me in keeping sort of my brand and my character, but also making sure that I'm keeping it real. If you could put a message on a fortune cookie, what would it say? Oh, you know what? My parents were such big influences in my life. If it was my dad's version of a fortune cookie, I would put that line, passion drives performance. Because it could be in a yoga class. It could be in your career. It could be in making a pizza. If you're really passionate about pizza, you can make a really good pizza. You know what I mean? I just think that it's such a great quote to go all through aspects of your life. And then my mom, oh my gosh, was my mom ever incredible. I mean, she fought her cancer to the very, very end and she tried everything. They gave her two months to live. She lived eight and a half years. So I draw all of my motivation and inspiration from from her and the way I watched her fight. And she had a couple of quotes, but I think one that sticks out is, I have it actually, I'm looking right at it. I have a plaque that I made that's on my wall and it says, choose to make every day a 10. And she really did, you know, she said, well, I'm dying. It's incurable. I'm not going to live forever. I'm going to live three days for every one that I have left. And I'm going to make every single day a 10 out of 10. And it's actually what's on my phone. That's what I've labeled my alarm. Choose to make today a 10 for mom. And she always said she's going to live her life with attitude, gratitude, and hope. So there, you asked for one, I gave you four. But those are the mantras that I've used. And they're relevant in your personal life, with your family, with your friends, and also a big part of my career. If she could get out of bed while dying of cancer, then I can get out of bed and make something out of my day. Now we'll get into some rapid-fire questions. Oh, boy. (laughs) When you feel unfocused or have a loss of focus temporarily, what do you do? I eat pizza and make a to-do list. Have you ever been starstruck? Only one time, Sam Hunt, country music singer. What do you love most about your job? It's different every single day. When you hear the word success, who do you think about? Pinball Clemens. Do you think you're a success? Absolutely. And why is that? Because I think that I have done things that I've made myself proud and I'm proud of who I am. And I think that in itself is successful, but I've also achieved a lot of things I set out to achieve. And I think success comes in many forms, big and small, and I think I am successful. What's been your favorite memory or favorite interview in your career? Honestly, that Grey Cup moment with Ricky Ray, that that final interview and my first ever Grey Cup, I think is the biggest moment of my career. Well, I want to thank you for your time, Kate. Where's the best place for people to get a hold of you? Are you on Twitter? Twitter and Instagram, and both of them are with my funny spelling. It's Kate Pedersen, and I underscore at the end. The way I tell everyone to spell my name is if you just remember all E's, two T's. And that's how you spell Pedersen correctly without the S-O-N. Well, I really wanted to thank you for your time, Kate. You gave a such a real perspective about your family and you've just been so real i i just wanted to thank you you're very welcome and thank you for reaching out to me 
think what you're doing is fantastic. And I think you really have the skills and the fundamentals and the work ethic that I think no matter where you end up or whatever you end up doing, I think you'll be great. I hope we can stay in touch. Absolutely. Reach out to me anytime.